Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Um, If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans 9 on page 889. So turn there, follow along. Um, If you're you're a kid, grab a bulletin, some crayons, whatever you need to do to kind of, uh, yeah, make yourself, um, yeah, have have fun and enjoy yourself during the the, uh, sermon. So we started the book of Romans over a year ago. Uh, and we've kind of been going through it off and on um, for the better part of the time. I think we've done about 22 sermons thus far to get through Romans chapters 1 through 8. And we've been looking at the theme of the righteousness of God uh, and kind of examining uh, what one theologian calls the righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. The righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. And so, so the idea is, Romans is kind of tackling this kind of uh, overarching question of how does a, a holy and righteous God, who uh, is utterly opposed to unrighteousness, how does that God uh, allow for sinners who are unrighteous in and of themselves, how does he allow them into his presence they are not worthy of his acceptance or his, his love. So how does that holy, righteous God take those unrighteous people, despite their pronounced lack of righteousness, and, and reconcile them to himself? And the answer that Paul kind of unpacks over the course of the 16 chapters is, God, the righteous God, allows unrighteous sinners into his presence despite their lack of righteousness because of Christ's uh, death and resurrection and by imputing Christ's righteousness to sinners, crediting the righteousness that Jesus earned uh, to the account of sinners so that they can be treated as if they lived the perfect life of, of Christ. It's a doctrine called uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the penalty that was meant for sinners. Jesus died in our place. Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner so that sinners can be treated as if they had lived the perfect life of Christ. And so we looked at Romans 1, kind of Paul uh, unpacking um, the wrath of God coming against Gentiles, people who don't know God, people who worship other gods and and idols. Uh, Romans 2, the wrath of God against the nation of Israel, people who uh, claim to know God but who are ultimately trusting in their own works or effort or, or merit. Romans 3, the wrath of God is coming against everyone. All have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by God's grace as a gift through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Romans 4 looks at Abraham in particular, kind of as a case study, right? Showing that, you know, if anyone in all of human history could ever have been justified by their works, it would have been Abraham. And so... Uh, Paul shows that even Abraham was not justified by his works, but he uh, trusted in God and was justified by faith, and so we do as well. Romans 5 kind of transitions and starts to look at some of the uh, results and implications and outworkings of this justification, namely the security that we enjoy as believers, that you can't lose your salvation because it was something that was given to you apart from uh, works or, or merit, You can't lose it. God is the one who saves his people, so God is also the one who keeps his people and helps them to persevere to the end. Romans 6 looks at this kind of uh, objection that Paul kind of anticipates or imagines that that, um, if we're saved by grace and we don't need good works or effort or merit to be saved, then doesn't that mean that we can just do whatever we want and live however we want uh, because 
you know, why, why not? And so the, the, the objection of doesn't Paul's gospel lead to sin and lawlessness? And he says no, because when God saves someone, he doesn't merely uh, kind of transact. He doesn't just put righteousness in their account and leave them untouched and unchanged, but he actually renews them and regenerates them, and, and their old self dies, and their new self is resurrected. So the old self that loved sin and hated God is dead, and the new self that loves God and hates sin, I'm not sure, what, I'm not sure if I said that wrong or not, but the new self that loves God and hates sin is now uh, brought to, to life. Romans 7 um, we look specifically at the law. We're no longer bound by the law. We're no longer enslaved to the law. We are now under grace and no longer under the law, but uh, we still fight against our sinful nature and fight to try and obey God's law. And then Romans 8 kind of sums everything up thus far. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we've been saved by grace through faith. God has given us salvation and new life. He's given us his spirit. He's adopted us as his children. We call him our father. He keeps us forever. Those whom he predestines, he calls. And those whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Nothing can separate us ever in all of eternity. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that's Romans 1 through 8 that we worked through over the past year. Romans 9 through 11 is kind of a, a, an interlude or kind of a, another section that Paul jumps into. Um, so it's kind of functioned as similar, essentially as its own sermon series. We're going to go through Romans 9 through 11 between now and, and Advent. Um, but a really kind of answering, it's one big section that kind of answers one uh, question, Right? Um, the, the question that Paul is kind of hearing in his mind or anticipating is, Paul, if your gospel is true, if we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and not, not because of our works or not because we are Jewish, not because we are citizens of, members of the nation of Israel, then that means that God's word has failed. God is a liar and he does not keep, if, if what Paul's preaching is true, his opponents are saying, then, Paul, then, then God is a liar, God's word is not true. Because if there are Gentiles who are saved by trusting in Jesus, and if there are Jewish people who are not saved because they have not trusted in Jesus, then what are we to make of all of the promises that God made to Abraham and the, the other forefathers, right? I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. I will save you. I will be your God. You will be my people. If Paul's gospel is true, then all of those promises are false. They, they, he didn't keep them. So God went back on his word. And... If God's word has failed, this is why it's particularly important for us today, if God's word has failed with respect to the nation of Israel, if God's ability or inability to save Israel after he promised that he would, right, then, then, then what does that say about God's ability to save us? If God made promises to Israel and didn't keep them, then what do we do with all the promises that God has made to us as Christians? That's Romans 9 through 11. Paul's going to argue that the Christian can and should trust that God will keep the promises that he has made to us by explaining how God has, in fact, 
kept the promises that he made to the nation of Israel over and against the objections from his opponents that say that he has not. And the, you can kind of boil Paul's argumentation down into three I mean, we're going to go through, you know, a dozen or so, uh, you know, sermons over these three chapters, um, but that you're, we're going to see three kind of recurring themes keep popping up, right? One is um, God's promises to Israel were, despite what Paul's opponents might think, God's promises to Israel were not actually given to every single physical genetic descendant of Abraham, to ethnic Israel. Instead, they were given specifically to those people within Israel who trusted God and believed God, or what, what Paul calls the, the spiritual Israel, or the, the people of God. So, so one kind of uh, you know, thesis that he's going to outwork is that not all Israel is Israel, that, that not everyone who claims to be the people of God just because they're a part of physical Israel is actually a part of the actual people of, of God. There's a remnant uh, within Israel. The second is... God intentionally allowed for the nation of Israel to reject Jesus. Uh, and there, there's a greater good that he, he did that for a reason. He did it for a specific reason, and namely so that the gospel could go forth out into the world, out into the nations, so that the Gentiles could hear the gospel and be saved. So, so one, not all of Israel is actually a part of the spiritual true Israel. Two, uh, Israel was permitted to reject the Messiah so that the gospel of the Messiah could go out to the, so that people like us could hear the gospel and believe it and be saved and reconciled to God. And then three, when the dust finally settles, when the chips are down, God is going to bring all of Israel, or at least some significant uh, portion of Israel, back to himself. After God has saved all of the Gentiles that he wants to save, there's going to be this great ingathering of, of Jewish people back to Christ, and they're going to be grafted back into the people of, of God. So, so one, God's promises were never intended for all of Israel. They were intended for the faithful remnant within Israel. Two, God has allowed Israel to reject him so that the Gentiles could have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And three, in the end, God is going to bring Israel back to himself, and they're going to trust in him and be reconciled to him. So you're going to hear some form of those three assertions in every sermon between Romans uh, 9 and, and 11. Today we're going to touch on, we're going to start with Romans 9, 1 through 13. Which is arguably the hardest Bible in the whole the hardest passage in the whole Bible to preach. So I, I planned it well. So, right, like do that right when I come back from several weeks off. It's a tough passage. It deals with predestination. It deals with the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation and how God sovereignly chooses some and not others to be a part of his people. And so it's a tough passage. A lot of people uh, don't like it or are offended by it. Um, but we're going to dive in, and we're going to read it, we're going to consider it, we're going to meditate on it, and we're going to see what the Lord has uh, to teach us through it this morning. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to dive in. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, blessed forever. Amen. But, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, And about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told the the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather and listen to your word and, and consider it and, and uh, seek to apply it to our lives. And we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray that you would give us grace and discernment and hearts that are teachable and that are marked by love of you and of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the two kind of main things that we're going to tackle in Romans 9, 1 through 13, two sections, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 6 through 13. So 1 through 5 um, is Paul's heart for the nation of Israel and, and, and his recounting the blessings that Israel possesses, the, the privileges that the nation of Israel has just by virtue of being the nation of Israel. So Paul's heart for the nation and their, their blessings. And then verses 6 through 13 is God's sovereign choice uh, to, to save some within that nation, but not necessarily all. So, so uh, Paul's heart for the nation and then God's sovereignty to save some, but not, not all. So starting with Paul's heart for the nation of Israel, verses 1 through 2, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So I'm, I'm torn up. I'm deeply sad. I'm, I'm uh, you know, unsettled. I have angst in my heart and in my soul because of the nation of Israel. Again, one of the, one of the critiques that Paul fielded from his critics was that Paul is saying that God has abandoned and forsaken the nation of Israel. Paul's, God's promises to Israel are null and void, but which kind of what they would also say, kind of an implication of that is, Paul, you hate Israel. You're an anti-Semite. You hate Jewish people because if you didn't, if you liked Jewish people, you would hold to a theology that says they're going to heaven. And since we all believe they're going to heaven and you're saying that they're not going to heaven, you must hate, you must, you're a Jew, 
but you must be a self-loathing Jew because you hate Israel and your gospel says that God hates Israel. And so then they would say, listen, if you're, if you're a Christian, that, that, that anti-Semitic gospel that Paul is teaching robs you of any assurance that you might otherwise have because it implies that God does not keep his promises to the nation of Israel. If God hates Israel and doesn't keep his promises to them, what makes you think that God loves you, Christian, and will keep his promises to you? And so Paul starts by saying, hold on, I don't hate Israel. In fact, I actually like them quite a bit. I love them. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. I lie awake at night thinking about uh, the eternal destination of my brothers in the nation of Israel. I care deeply about them. In fact, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I, I love Israel so much that if I could, I would send myself to hell if it meant that they could go to heaven in my place. That's how much I love the nation of Israel. I love my fellow Israelites and Jewish people. I, I, I love them, you know, I mean, it's, it's this Christ-like love that I'm willing to uh, give that much for them. Now, Paul does say, for I could wish that I were able to do that, because the fact is, he's not. That's not something, that's, in, that's not possible. No one can, you know, no Christian can say, I'm, I'll trade my salvation for theirs. I'll, you know, I, I, they can go to heaven in my place, and I will go to hell in, in their place. No Christian can trade their no, no, not only no Christian can trade their salvation for anyone else's because no Christian can lose their salvation anyway. Right? The whole thing with Romans eight was that God keeps all of the people that He saves. No one can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So um, you you can't lose your salvation, and God has not designed a world where a person can be damned because of their Christ exalting love for someone else. But Paul wishes that he could because he loves Israel that much. It's interesting. It's interesting that these three verses that showcase Paul's heart for, his love for, just his earnest investment in the spiritual and eternal well-being of the nation of Israel, of, of people that he understands to be lost and going to hell, that, that these three verses are situated in... So Romans 9 is the, kind of the, the quintessential passage that, that you will look to in support of the doctrine of, of predestination, that God elects some to salvation and not others. This is the main passage that you're going to look to to support that doctrine. And one of the main criticisms of the doctrine of predestination is that people who believe it are cold and uncaring and indifferent, right? And, and they, they don't, uh, they're not motivated to share the gospel with others, right? right? Um, people who believe in predestination don't care about other people's salvation. They don't care about sharing the gospel because they don't even think that it will make a difference anyway. Right? Uh, if God's already chosen who was going to go to heaven before he created the world, and we can't change it, then why, what does any of this matter? Why, why, I'd rather just spend all of my time 
fine-tuning my theology and making sure that I'm right on all of these random little things, reading a bunch of old books written by dead guys, and thinking, how, thinking about how right I am about everything all the time and how much better my interpretation of the Bible is than everyone else's. I'll never share the gospel with anyone because that's beneath me. I'll never pray for anyone else to come to know Christ because why would I? God's already taken care of that. I'll be more invested in how right I am than I am invested in other people coming to know Christ. That's the criticism that you might hear leveled against the doctrine of predestination. And it's not, not entirely, you know, not sure that it's always wrong. I've, I've met some people who, you know, maybe look and feel and act and talk like, like that. But if you believe in the doctrine of predestination, if you believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and if you read your Bible, then, then you should be, you shouldn't be less motivated to care about and pray for and share the gospel with your lost friends and neighbors. You should be the most zealous, most committed, most passionate evangelist and prayer warrior that there, there is. If you believe in the doctrine of predestination, then your, your heart for lost people how much you care about lost people, how invested you are in their salvation, the lengths that you are willing to go to give other people an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel should far exceed that of anyone else. Because the main doctrine that you look to that teaches predestination, which is uh, verses 6 through 23 coming up, is, is nestled right next to verses 1 through 5 where we see Paul say, I am deeply committed to, to prayer and evangelism, and, and I'm deeply invested in lost people and seeing them come to know Christ. The sovereignty of God, the doctrine of predestination, does not undermine or contradict or, or stifle the priority of evangelism. It, it fuels it. And when understood rightly, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and predestination would, would then propel us to be fervent, faithful, diligent missionaries, evangelists, to care about others, to share the gospel with them, to grieve when they reject the gospel, to pray that they will receive the gospel, to, to boldly share the gospel with them. That's how a person who believes in predestination and is consistent in their beliefs, acts. So Paul says, contrary to what you may have heard about me, I don't hate Israel. God doesn't hate Israel. And contrary to what you may have heard that I teach, being an Israelite does not put you at some sort of disadvantage when it comes to receiving and enjoying the, the grace of God. On the contrary, it affords you numerous advantages, and he basically says, I'll list off eight of them, right? Adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises, patriarchs, the Messiah him, himself, right? There are a bajillion advantages, spiritual privileges that you own and possess if you're a part of the nation of, of Israel. You've been adopted, there's a sense in which every single human being having been created in God's image is a child of God, right? The, um, the call to worship, right? Uh, God is the father uh, of every family in heaven and on earth uh, after whom they are, are named. So God is everyone's father, but there is a special adoptive relationship between God and the nation of Israel. 
Exodus chapter 4, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go so that they may serve me. If you read Ezekiel 16, it speaks of God walking through a field and he sees an orphan baby that's been abandoned by his parents. And he takes that and he says, you're, you Israel, you're this baby, right? Lying in a field in your own you know, blood and just having been abandoned and left for dead and I picked you up and I cleaned you off and I took care of you and I, I took you in as my own. He adopted Israel as his firstborn son. So they have adoption, they have glory, right? Probably referring to the glory of God in the temple and in the tabernacle, right? God's presence comes down and dwells in the, the temple that's there in the midst of the people of, of, of Israel, right? It, it is, what advantage is there in being Jewish? Paul's saying, how about the fact that you wake up every morning and your commute to work drives by God's house where he lives, right? Like, if you live in China or India or Russia or, you know, you're thousands of miles away from the, the physical place where God's presence dwells on earth. That's a, an, an incredible privilege to, to have the glory of God in your midst, to then belong the covenants. God's covenant with Abraham that he would make him a great nation. His covenant with Moses, giving them the law of God on Sinai. His covenant with David, that he would raise up another king that would rule over the people of God forever. To them belong the law given to Moses at Sinai. Ten commandments, hundreds of other laws that that accompany them, that show us how God wants us to live and, and how we have fallen short of God's standards so that we can look to the Messiah to be saved from our sins. It's a privilege to have the law of God. To them belong the worship, right? The privilege of worshiping God in the temple with the people of God. Everyone else has to kind of make up who God is and, you know, hope for the best and worship this fake God that they made up as best as they can, can figure out. Israel has the revealed word of God. They get to worship God as he has revealed himself and prescribed them to worship him. It's a great privilege. To them belong the promises, right? Similar to covenants. You know, covenants are probably more specific with Abraham and Moses and David, but there's a myriad of other promises that God makes to his people all throughout the Old Testament. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. I will hear you when you pray. I will love you forever. I will make your paths straight. I will ensure that you never lack any good thing that you need. If you're an Israelite in the first century, you are familiar with and carrying around in your soul a myriad of promises that God has made to you. To them belong the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these pillars of faith that are revered and looked to as examples of, of faithfulness for centuries. That's an incredible advantage. And then finally, from their race is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. So if you're an Israelite, you are a part of the nation, the clan, the culture, the people group from whom would come uh, the, the Messiah, God incarnate, come here to save sinners all over the entire world. So Paul's saying, it's true that not every ethnically Jewish person will be saved because they all don't trust in Jesus. 
And it's true that a great many Gentiles will be saved because they do trust in Jesus. But that does not mean that there's no point or no advantage in being Jewish. There definitely is. There's a ton of them just off the cuff. And then in verse 6, he kind of moves on to the broader point that he's making. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. If the first point in verses 1 through 5 was, contrary to what you may hear people accuse me of saying, there is an advantage to being Jewish, then the point in verses 6 through 13 is, contrary to what you may hear other people accuse me of saying, God's word has not failed. If you ever hear me say that you have to trust in Christ to be saved and that the only way to be reconciled to God is by his grace through faith in Jesus, if that makes you think that God's word has failed then you are mistaken. That is not a deficiency in the word of God and the promise of God. That's a deficiency in your understanding of what God promised. The thinking was, since God has promised every single ethnically Jewish person will be saved forever, regardless of what we do or don't do, regardless of what we believe or do not believe, just because we're Jewish... And if God has also promised that every single Gentile is going to be excluded from God's kingdom and excluded from God's presence, regardless of whether they trust in Christ or not, just because they are not Jewish like we are. Therefore, when Paul says that there are going to be Jews who are not saved and that there are going to be Gentiles who are saved, that means that God's word has failed. And Paul is saying that God's word has not failed. You have misunderstood the promises of God. And here's how. Not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his physical genetic offspring. In other words, the promises from God to save his people were never intended to apply to every single ethnically Jewish person who would ever live and walk the earth just by virtue of the the Jewish blood that is in their veins, or the, by virtue of the fact that they are physically descendant from Abraham. The promises about salvation were never intended to be for all of them. The promises about salvation were intended for a, a remnant of elect, faithful persons who exist within the nation of Israel. Not everyone who is physically descended from Abraham actually belongs to the true spiritual Israel. Not everyone who is physically descended from Abraham is a part of the people of God. There are certain people among ethnic Israel who are a part of the people of God, and there are certain people among ethnic Israel who are not a part of the people of God. The person might say, what are you talking about, Paul? That doesn't, make any, that doesn't make any sense. Name me one person who's a physical descendant of Abraham who's not a part of the true Israel, the true people of God. And Paul says, that's easy. We don't even have to go but one generation to show you one. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's Genesis 22. If you remember back to the story of Abraham, which we encountered together when we walked through Genesis a couple of years ago. Abraham leaves his home, leaves his family. God promises him to make him a great nation. But he and his wife are old, and they have been experiencing infertility their entire lives. 
They're pushing 100. They're past childbearing years. There's no way that they can have any kids. And so Abraham decides that God's promise is too incredible, too fantastic, too unbelievable. So he decides to give God some help. And he sleeps with his wife's servant, Hagar. She gets pregnant and gives birth to Abraham's first biological son, whose name is Ishmael. And then God speaks to Abraham and says, No, I didn't tell you to have a child with Hagar. I know you thought you were doing me a favor since Sarah was not able to have any children, but I didn't ask you to do me any favors. I, I intentionally chose this impossible thing so that I could do this thing that is impossible so that you and everyone else for all of human history would be so marveled at and impressed by this incredible thing that I did. It was a miracle that I did and you did not do. And he says, by Isaac, so, so Ishmael is not going to be the son that we establish a nation by. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so Paul says, see, literally exhibit A, first generation from Abraham, one of his children is a child of the promise, one of his children is a child of the flesh. One of his children is a part of true spiritual Israel, and one of his children is not. So it's not that every single physical genetic descendant of Abraham is the recipient and beneficiary of these covenant promises. It's that certain ones are and certain ones are not. The Isaacs are, the Ishmaels are not. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So there's going to be tons of people who have physically descended from Abraham who can trace their lineage back to Abraham, and he's in their family line. They're the children of the flesh. But Paul says, for the purpose of determining who the promises of the Old Testament belong to, who can claim them as their own, it's not that large group of physical descendants comprised of Isaacs and Ishmaels, believers and unbelievers. It is specifically the remnant of believers within Israel that exists within that larger mixed group. Those are the true children of the promise, the true spiritual Israel. For this is what the promise said, at about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's from Genesis 18, where God is telling Abraham that Ishmael is not the child of the promise. He's the child of the flesh. He's still your son. I still love him. I'm going to take care of him and provide for him, but he's not the child of the promise. Isaac is. That's the argument that Paul is crafting so far, right? The saving promises of God do not apply to every single physical descendant of Abraham. They apply to the Israel within Israel, the true Israel, which is pretty much a restating of what Paul said back in Romans 2, where he said, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but rather a Jew is one inwardly. And, spirit, and circumcision is spiritual. It's a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So there's, there's physical Israel, who people are Jews outwardly, and they've been circumcised outwardly. But then there's true spiritual Israel, people who have been circumcised inwardly of the heart by the, by the spirit. So, The present rejection of the gospel message by ethnic Jews is not evidence that God's promises have failed because not every physical descendant of Israel was a member of the people of God. God's word had not failed. It has not failed. In fact, God 
has and is and does save every single person that he intends to save. Namely, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel that exists within the larger ethnic Israel. The word of God has not failed because the promises of God apply to those particular people and not necessarily to all of those, those people. And so every single one of those individuals within the remnant of true spiritual Israel are saved without fail. That's Paul's argument. Now, at this point, someone might respond, yeah, but that doesn't count. Ishmael, I mean, come on, that's like, it hadn't even really, hadn't even really gotten off the ground yet, right? The promise was just made, and maybe Abraham didn't hear him right. He went to, you know, like, Ishmael is kind of like a, a beta test, but, you know, like, then there was the, like, so that, you know, the fact that Ishmael, the fact that Isaac was the son of the promise and not Ishmael, I mean, he was an illegitimate child, born out of adultery, so he doesn't really count. And Paul says, all right, fine, I'll do you one better. We'll find another example from another generation where God chooses one child and not the other, but it won't be because the child was born out of adultery and one was not. I'll show you another example with two boys, same mother, same father. In fact, born at the same time, they're twins. There's literally nothing circumstantially that, that, that is changing them. Neither one of them has done anything good or bad. There's no earthly reason why anyone would choose one rather than the other. And yet, for, one, for some reason, according to God's sovereign will and plan, he chooses one and not the other. One is going to be the child of the promise. One is going to be a child of the flesh. Verse 10. And not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born, they had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. So this is the very next generation. You have Isaac, the child of the promise, his wife Rebekah, Give birth to two sons, Jacob and Esau. You can read about it in Genesis 25. And technically, Esau is the older brother. He's born first. But God says, the younger one is the son that I'm going to choose. He's the child of the promise. The older will serve the younger. Which is exactly what happens. As they get older, we find that, as it turns out, both Jacob and Esau have besetting sins that they struggle with, but over time it becomes clear that Jacob loves God, desires God, wants to experience and receive blessing from God, and Esau does not. Esau wants soup. Esau wants to do his own thing, apart from God and apart from the covenant blessings of God. So, so Jacob and Esau both have agency, they both have free will. They both make meaningful decisions for which they are responsible. And yet things develop exactly as God intended, exactly as God ordained, exactly as God predestined. Jacob is the child of the promise. Esau is the child of the flesh. God ordained them and chose them accordingly long before any of them had ever done anything good or, or bad. As it is written... Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So this is a tough verse. A lot of people don't like it. It's upsetting. It's unsettling to think about God hating someone. 
right? Some people say, I'll take John 3.16, God so loved the world. I like that. I'll keep it. I'm going to throw away Romans 9.13, Esau, I hated, don't want it, don't like it, doesn't make me feel good. But if the Bible is really God's word, like we believe that it is, then we have to read it, we have to wrestle with it, we have to submit to it. So here's what's going on in, in uh, Romans 9.13. It's a quote from Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi chapter 1, God is talking with the people of Israel, and the people of Israel are talking with God. And they're basically saying, God, we don't think that you really love us. Like a, you know, like a spoiled kid who, you know, has all of, you know, has all of this stuff, but what, what, I, I don't see any evidence that you love me. Right? What, what have you ever done for me that, that's good or that shows that you love me? How have you ever treated us any better than anyone else in the world? And God's response is, how have I loved you? Are you kidding me? Like, do you even need to ask that question? How have I loved you? Look how I treated Jacob, your father, compared to his brother Esau, who, by the way, was older. His brother Esau, by the way was the firstborn son. If anyone was entitled to these special privileges and covenant blessings, it would have been Esau and not Jacob. And yet, for whatever reason, other than my kindness, my grace, my mercy, the fact that I'm good and kind and loving, I have chosen to love you and to make covenant promises to you and to treat you better than you deserve to be treated. So much so. I have treated Israel so much so better than they deserve that my love for Esau, by comparison, looks like hatred. That's the context of Malachi 1. God, you don't really love us. What do you mean I don't love you? I love you so much that the other people that I love, it's like it's infinitely more than the other people who I also love because I created them and they're made in my image. The Bible often uses the word hatred in that context. As, as a contrast with love, but specifically kind of referring to a lesser love that is outpaced and outdone by a greater love. Uh, in Genesis 29, Jacob marries two women, Rachel and Leah. Chapter 29, verse 30, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So he loved them both. He just loved Rachel more. Loved them both. Here's how much I love Leah. Here's how much I love Rachel. That's 29 verse 30. 29 verse 31 says that God saw that Leah was hated. So, I love Rachel more than I love Leah. You hate Leah. Right? So, so the word hatred can kind of have that connotation in Scripture that it means you love something just less than you love something else. Uh, you know, Jesus in Matthew 10 and Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, if you don't hate all of those things, you cannot be my disciple. He's not saying you have to yeah, have, have hatred for your family or, or want to do harm to yourself or anything like that. He's just saying that 
your love for, if your love for anyone and anything in the world, including your own life, your body, yourself, your family, your spouse, your kids, your, if you love anything in the world more than you love God, then you're not worthy of being a disciple of Jesus. Your love for Jesus has to outshine and outpace even the, the, all of these things that we are biologically ingrained to love so much. So Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God is saying, how can you say that you don't think that I love you? I have loved you more than you could possibly imagine. I have loved you more than Esau. I loved Esau. I loved Esau's descendants, but I love you more. I love the nation of Israel more. I love you in a way that is deeper and and better than I love the descendants of Esau. That's Malachi 1. That's what Paul is drawing on here in Romans 9. Right? He's saying if God has chosen Abraham to be the father of his nation, right, of, of all of Abraham's children, God chose Isaac to be the child of the promise, where the covenant line would come from. And then of all of Isaac's kids, who were twins, by the way, there was nothing in terms of earthly accomplishments or worthiness that, of circumstances surrounding their birth that would distinguish one from the other. Of all of Isaac's kids, God chose Jacob to be the child of the promise where the covenant line would come from. Ever since the very beginning, God has been choosing, even within the nation of Israel, God has been choosing some and not others. And it's the ones that God has chosen that are the object of his special love and affection and covenant promises. And so when you look specifically at the nation of Israel, God has chosen a certain subgroup within them, a remnant of believers, true spiritual Israel that exists within the greater mixed body that is physical, ethnic Israel. And it's that true spiritual Israel of believers that makes up God's covenant people. Those are the people for whom the covenants and the promises are really for. And so the objection that Paul's gospel means that the word of God has failed is misguided. God's word has not failed because it was never intended to apply comprehensively to all of ethnic Israel. It was always intended to apply specifically to the true spiritual Israel. And every single person within the true spiritual Israel is saved. Every single one. So God's word has not failed. It is true. It has always been true, and it always will be true. God saves the people that he sets out to save. There is never, never in all of history has there ever been one person that God tried to save, and he failed. There's not one person that God has tried to save, and that person ended up lost. God has kept every promise that he has ever made. He hasn't dropped the ball once. And he has saved every single person that he has set out to save. He has never lost one. And God will keep his promises that he has made to you. And God will save you if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. His word has not failed. He saves his people irrevocably, indelibly, forever. God will never fail to save a person that he sets out to save. And if you trust in Jesus, God will save you and he will never, ever lose you. And that's what we remember together when we celebrate communion. 
that God keeps his promises, that Jesus died for us, and that God will save us, and that God will keep us. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you are a member of the people of God, then this is our opportunity to remember the gospel together and to celebrate the gospel together as a family. After I pray, the musicians are going to come up, and uh, as the music starts, you can come forward down the middle aisle and and, uh, grab the elements. There's gluten-free crackers and grape juice, and kind of head back to your seats. Just take a moment. Do business with God, repent of your sin, receive the grace that he freely offers to you, rejoice that we've been reconciled to God together as a family, and then eat uh, and, and drink. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion because the Bible teaches against it, and instead we would invite you uh, not to take communion, but to take Christ and to trust him to save you from the wrath of God so that you can be reconciled to him and enjoy his loving presence forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word has not failed. We thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises that you never fail to do what you set out to do and you never fail to save your people. And Lord, we come to you this morning trusting in you to save us and to keep us forever. And it's in Jesus' good and precious name that we pray. Amen.